0: One of the most famous plays in English literature, Macbeth tells the story of a Scottish general who happens to meet three witches. When the witches prophesy to him that he will one day become king of Scotland, Macbeth collaborates with his wife, Lady Macbeth, to murder the existing king of Scotland and take the throne for himself. After the murder, he is racked by guilt and paranoia, which lead to more murders, civil war, and a gradual descent into madness. It's a play that many of us read now when we are in grade school, centuries after the context of the play has disappeared. Audiences of Macbeth's time would have watched this play while looking around at each other quite anxiously, as in 1603, England itself had just had its own throne invaded by a Scottish king. Would England suffer the same fate under James I as Scotland did under the tyrannical rule of Macbeth? You're listening to Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia, episode 50 Macbeth. This episode is the second in a mini series about the English Revolution. Before listening to this episode, we recommend starting with episode 49, which is about Bloody Mary. Race, um, my getting to know your question for today is topical. Sometimes they are. But my question is, what is your favorite Shakespeare play?
1: It's a good question. It's um, for an English nerd. This is sort of like somebody <laughs> just laying a red carpet out and being like, speak at length about this dorky thing. You feel a lot of strong feelings. About. <laughs> um but my answer i don't think is a terribly common one my favorite is the merchant of venice oh okay i really love the merchant of venice i think that it's um underread i think it's also i mean it's hard to argue that it's mischaracterized um characterized because shakespeare himself characterized it as a comedy um but i think it's very good i think it's very um approachable because a lot of people um, I feel are like kind of scared away by Shakespeare I feel like here read Hamlet it's you know 600,000 pages long and it's really intense or whatever <laughs> people get af- afraid and I feel like Merchant of Venice is pretty slim it's very approachable and I just I just love it it's my favorite one I think it's got um, I think the story is very compelling I think the images and the messages are uh, really good. I mean, it's about anti-Semitism, <laughs> in which we still haven't quite figured out 400 years later. Uh, it's just, it's, it's really good. I, I read it every, uh, probably every year or so, every couple of years, I find myself reading it. My copy's all, I have a kind of a cool collection of like matching Shakespeare um, books. And you can just tell by looking on my shelf that like my Merchant of Venice is all, much more worn and kind of, you know, dog-eared than my other copies. So my by a mile, Merchant of Venice.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Have you ever seen it performed?
1: I think so, but I, I was like on a school trip when I was 12. So I don't think I've, I've seen filmed productions of it, but I don't think, or I don't have a clear memory of seeing it in a theater.
0: Oh, gotcha. I think I thought that you had told me you saw it recently. Maybe I was talking to somebody no, else. No, I have not. I love The Merchant of Venice. I think it's such a great play. I think I think I saw it performed when I was in high school, hmm. and I definitely read it when I was in high school, and it definitely, like you said, it was one of the most approachable plays. It was like yeah. while you're in the middle of reading Hamlet and like, I don't know, the winter the <laughs> obscure ones. The Merchant of Venice is shockingly very clear story but it's also not one that I think is told that often so you don't find yourself like already kind of knowing the story whereas you might say with something like Macbeth you know
1: yeah I also feel like one of the things I like about it is so the story of Hamlet as relatable as it might be on certain levels it's also about like a prince whose dad was murdered or whatever there's often a lot of like kings and you know things that aren't terribly relatable but i think the reason i i use the word approachable about um merchant of venice is the story is somebody has the choice between being forgiving and being um exacting
0: Mm -hmm. like justice
1: and mercy it's a very real thing that like you're probably going to experience in your relationships and with your family more than once in your life whereas you know Hamlet like deciding oh, should I take action and I'm a spoiled king or prince it's like eh, you know I, it's it's a little harder to feel whereas the first time I read Merchant of Venice I was like I really, I really feel the humanity in this in a way that mm. I didn't in other ones and um, yeah it's a great great tale
0: oh that's really beautiful uh, my favorite Shakespeare play is King Lear mm. and um I've never seen it performed live I've always wanted to so if anybody knows of any productions (laughs) please (laughs) send me a message because I would just love to see it performed live I think it's a wonderful play it's one of the big tragedies and unlike Hamlet, Macbeth, Othello I think King Lear is not so easily summarized it's not one that um, immediately people know the plot of, or they can talk about at length. Um, but it's a really wonderful plot. Um, my teacher once said it's a plot about it's a play about getting old, and I can't relate to that element of it. King Lear was like in his 80s, but I do think that the story of King Lear is really exciting. There's a lot of like family and throne drama, and there's some interesting characters yeah. and spooky elements to it that all in all i think make for a nice aesthetic experience
1: yeah king lear is um i think king lear is probably one of the saddest Um, super sad yeah yeah it's it's kind it's pretty heartrending. um along with Mm -hmm. merchant of venice i would also say that as well
0: Mm -hmm. yeah definitely so many to choose from though i mean i i really do love a lot of shakespeare plays so yeah, take I think a lot of them. Yeah.
1: Um, Othello is a is a, a high one for me as well. I really enjoy mm-hmm. that. Um, and I feel like I've seen the most, some of the most compelling adaptations of Shakespeare that I've seen. Um, I think some of the best ones have been of Othello. There's some really good Othellos out there. Oh, okay. That I have enjoyed quite a bit. So yeah, so many to choose from.
0: All right, so we're continuing on in our series today about the revolution of the English kingdom. And in order to do so, last time we talked about Bloody Mary and her um, kind of reign of terror as she sent many a Catholic or Protestant to be burned at the stake. Today, we will be talking about the monarchs that succeeded Bloody Mary, namely Elizabeth I and James I. But before we do that, um, it's an interesting moment in history here because a very important Shakespeare play now becomes quite an important element in the story of the English Revolution. So we're going to talk about that play today, which is Macbeth.
1: Yeah. And the kind of one of the metaphors that I was, uh, I was talking to my wife about this um, earlier today that seems fit, or I guess maybe like a corollary is. So in the 1960s, I think it was the 1960s, um, we get a play called The Crucible, which is about the Salem Witch Trials, but is actually about communism, right? Or the the Red Scare in the United Mm -hmm. States. So it's like ostensibly about this thing that happened hundreds of years before, but any audience watching it would be like, I know what's going on here. Um, And that's why the Shakespeare play is kind of front and center in this episode about the history of English monarchs because um, it was very of its time and, and, and was addressing the issues that were going on at the time. So it was first uh, Macbeth was first performed in 1606. Um, like Tyler said, this would have been when James the first was on the throne. So he was the King. Um, if you need some context, uh, slightly more context for that when you hear people talk about the King James version of the Bible, This is the James we're talking about. And there's actually evidence that Shakespeare, um, who had a close, fairly close relationship with James, um, helped with like the translation and the compilation of the King James version of the Bible, which is sort of interesting. Um, And and it would make sense because he was kind of a a luminary and a scholar um, of And so he would have been on fancy committees that were advising the king on translation and stuff. Um, and James, um, as I was saying, was a patron of Shakespeare's acting company, and we'll get into this more as we go on, but the, um, the relationship between Shakespeare and his king is on display for sure in this play. Uh, the source material for um, Macbeth, like with often Shakespeare's plays, is grounded in historical events. This is the story of an 11th century king of Scotland. So this story would have been as far removed um, historically from Shakespeare's audience as like the story of Christop- um, Christopher Columbus is from us now, something along those lines. So like this was an old story, hundreds of years old, um, but it was about a King of Scotland um, who was named Macbeth and he had um, you know a buddy named Macduff and all this stuff. And so basically around the story of the King of Scotland, but as, um, Shakespeare and a good adapter will do. There's also quite a bit of change to make the story more interesting and more relevant and um, make sense in his time, which will again, we'll we'll discuss that as we get to it because he really did adapt this story to the political and religious moment that he found himself in. Um, The story of Macbeth, the king, the 11th century king comes from the Hollinside Chronicles which is an early history of England, and so we actually have like a record of this King Macbeth um, that Shakespeare doesn't stick too closely to. And the plot of Macbeth, and if you're getting flashbacks to like 10th grade English, I'm really sorry, but it's a good story. Um, and and uh, <laughs> I think a relatable story in some ways too, because it's very, you know, House of Cards or Game of Thronesy in some ways. So Macbeth is a Scottish general fighting for his king, fighting for Scotland against a united Norway and Ireland. So Norway and Ireland have teamed up and Macbeth is leading the good fight um, and is high up in the in the military. And uh, wouldn't you know it, as again often will happen in Shakespeare, he's visited um, by a kind of mysterious um, person, actually three people. So he's visited by a trio of witches who tell him they say, Macbeth, you will be become the thane of Cowdor, so basically a high-ranking, fancy-pants, you know, um, under monarch in, in the kingdom of Scotland, and then eventually you will be the king of Scotland. Um, Macbeth is traveling with a companion named Banquo, and Banquo is told that, Banquo, you will not be king, but your children will sit on the throne of Scotland. And uh, Macbeth and Banquo are like, that was pretty crazy. What are, you know, that doesn't seem like that's going to happen. And then um, the, the first act kind of ends with them getting word that the Thane of Kowdor, this um, position that Macbeth is supposedly going to take, um, has been killed. And that, you know, Macbeth, um, the king has said, I'm going to make Macbeth the Thane of Kowdor. And so it's kind of this, you know, dramatic eye contact moment where they're like, Maybe there's something to what these witches have said. And then as the story progresses, um, that's a main theme of what is the role of these witches? Um, is, this, is this fate? Is it, you know, evil witchcraft? Are they speaking something that's inevitable or are they, um, you know, kind of uh, uh, are they just telling the truth or are they an evil force in the play? Anyway, Macbeth returns to his home castle and he goes to his wife and he's like, hey, you're never going to believe what just happened. And um, Macbeth's daring and motivated wife is like, well, we have to do everything we can to make sure you become the King of Scotland, including killing the current King Duncan. And um, the King was supposed to come and stay the night at Macbeth's house as, in celebration of the battles that had been won and Macbeth's great uh, bravery. And so Macbeth having this King um, right where he wants him, decides at his wife's insistence that um, he should kill the king, which he does. And um, while he and Lady Macbeth try to hide their treason from the kingdom at large, from Banquo specifically and a lot of other people, guilt and paranoia and the haunting, both literal and metaphorical, of the dead king complicate this cover-up that they're trying to do, this power grab. And as is always the case, the one killing, the killing of the king, leads to lots and lots of uh, bloodshed. uh, Because Macbeth has to eliminate witnesses, he has to eliminate other people who could inherit the throne and consolidate power and all of that. Um, So it's, you know, kind of per usual and specifically per um, Shakespearean tragedy, it's a complete bloodbath. And in the end, the witch's prophecies are made true. Macbeth, is becomes the king of scotland but he's defeated and then banquo's children rule uh his treason macbeth's treason costs him his life and his short stint as a king is kind of a black spot in the history and he you know is so obsessed with keeping his power and keeping um challengers at bay that he's a terrible and iron-fisted and kind of tyrannical king that is um you know, removed and the people, there's great rejoicing. So that's the basic plot of Macbeth. Did I miss anything, Tyler?
0: <laughs> I think you got it. <clears throat>
1: okay, good. Um, just a few asides, as, um, as you'll always see with Shakespeare, there's so much that impacts, you know, our, from our phrases and language to, um, you know, ideas and kind of pl- plot tropes make their way into our culture and our language from Shakespeare. And so some of the interesting ones from this one are, um, the witches in particular kind of have an outsized role in kind of our culture and language, I would say. So um, if you've ever heard the phrases, something wicked this way comes, double, double toil and trouble, those come from the witches. And that would have been an invention of Shakespeare that um, exists definitely till today. And the, the idea of like a trio of witches all uh, Hocus Pocus um, is pretty powerful. And when they're making, at the beginning of the play, they're like seen making a, a, um, a brew, you know, their witch's brew, and the way they talk there is like forever um, copied. So they're like, we, we're putting in an eye of newt and blood of a pure white lamb and, you know, a rat's tail and all this stuff. And that I think comes pretty strongly from Macbeth, that image of these brewing witches. Um, it's also a play that lives on, so there's a great superstition surrounding Macbeth. Um, do you know the story of this, Tyler, the superstition?
0: Only the, the superstition still exists. I don't know how it came about.
1: I don't really know either. I don't know that that's terribly well kind of documented. Um, yeah. So this-, this well, It but, is
0: documented in 30 Rock though.
1: Correct. So yeah. we, get, we get an
0: example of that in our favorite show.
1: <laughs> That's right. As you say, there's, <laughs> there's always a moment in 30 Rock. But, um, so the, the idea is that among, in the theater, um, the theater community that Macbeth is the cursed play. And so you're part, and part of the superstition that comes along with that is that you're not supposed to use the name of the play. So the name Macbeth in italics um, inside a theater, like at any time, you can reference the character Macbeth because that's a person. But you cannot say, you know, oh, and next week we're going to put on a production of Macbeth, and that's, it gets this kind of sobriquet of the Scottish play, a nickname that you're supposed to use in the place of um, using the the cursed name that will bring bad luck to the theater. Um, this is cleverly referenced in Hamilton, um, the the famous play, uh, contemporary play. Um, and that kind of brings me to something else. Often when somebody discusses, when a, a work of art or whatever is talking about ambition, uh, uh, Macbeth will get referenced. And I specifically in my summary tried not to use the word ambition and it was hard because that's kind mm-hmm. of like the the spark notes, um, headline of macbeth is like ambition he you know what what will you do to become king what will you do to reach your goals what if it you know what if you have to crush some skulls on the way is it worth it and that's kind of a fairly shallow i would say but but also um accurate reading of one of the themes that's going on in macbeth and so um it's referenced in hamilton because of hamilton's ambition and his kind of drive um as portrayed in the Lin-Manuel around the play. But then also within the play, there's kind of a theater kid joke where Hamilton is saying, people think that I'm like Macbeth. And he says, as he's writing a letter and he says, yeah, um, people around here all think I'm like Macbeth. And he says, I trust you reference, uh, or um, you understand the reference I'm making without my having to name the play. And the reason he's saying that is because, um, not because the Hamilton being portrayed was in a theater, but because the actor portraying Hamilton in Lin- Lin- Lin-Manuel Miranda's production is in a theater, he can't say, mm-hmm. you know, like from that play Hamilt- or um, Macbeth. And so there's kind of this um, wink, wink, nudge, nudge to like the theater um, superstition there, which is kind of fun. There's also some um, almost every Shakespeare play is going to have a famous speech that it's like, oh yeah, I've heard of that. Or it's, it's kind of has an outsized impact on our language. And I think for Macbeth, it would be this one. And I'll read it because um, when was the last time you had somebody read 10 lines of Shakespeare at you? So this is towards the end of the play. Uh, spoiler alert, 400. Uh, Macbeth's wife is, um, is she's, she dies and Macbeth finds out about this his kind of partner in crime and in some ways the only reason he went through with it is is gone this is his sort of like rumination on the pointlessness of life but you'll hear some phrases that you've probably heard before so he said she should have died hereafter meaning she should have died some other time there would have been a time for such a word tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day today to that last syllable of recorded time and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death out out brief candle life is but a walking shadow a poor actor that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more it is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing so um the that last line full of sound and fury signifying nothing that lends itself um to the title of a william faulkner play the sound and the fury out out brief candle you'll probably have heard before it gets referenced um and anyway so there's kind of the one of the more famous passages from macbeth And we can we'll get into it as we as we continue. But there's lots of other places that I can and maybe we'll read from the text where it's really clear that we're talking, like I said, about um, The reign of King James and the political turmoil going on, even though it's couched as a story, a 400 year old story about um, the king of Scotland. We actually know that it's about our current king, our current Scottish King James, the first and so it's it's an interesting read because of that, and really just a wonderful uh, wonderful story. So that's my uh, two cents on Macbeth, and I'm really excited as we in this episode and in the future episode get down into kind of how Shakespeare weaves in the you know the kind of Easter eggs, if you want to put it that way, where he's talking about the current political situation, but in a story that, you know, also stands alone as a tale of an old Scottish king who's consumed by, you know, lust for power.
0: I love Macbeth. I think it is such a wonderful, wonderful play. I like how famous the imagery is. Obviously Mm -hmm. everybody knows about the witches and kind of the mood of Macbeth and the ghosts that appear in things. Mm -hmm. But I also love that it's driven, like we talked about last time, by Characters making choices, you yeah. know. The witches present a prophecy to Macbeth, and then him and Lady Macbeth have to decide what they want to do with that information. Yeah. I also think I love the uh, little morality that's tacked onto the end of like, you shouldn't believe the prophecies too literally yeah. because the witches tell Macbeth that he's going to be invincible and that no woman born of. Or, excuse me, no man born of woman will be able to harm Macbeth. Yeah. He's like, oh, I'm fine. Everyone's born of woman. Like, no one can touch me. And then up comes Macduff. And he's like, actually, I was (laughs) C-sectioned when I was born. (laughs) And "And that's the end
1: of you. (laughs) And then Macbeth's like, oh, I should have thought about that. (laughs) That kind of reminds me of the moment in... Lord of the Rings, where there's uh, the the whoever the Nazgul or whatever, they're like, yeah, they can't. No man can kill um, these like Dark Riders, and then a woman kills, and she says, "I'm no uh...
0: man," which kind of feels <laughs> sort of like you know
1: a, a, a similar thing. Um, yeah, it's like gotcha. Yeah, yeah. One of those yeah, I gotcha like the prophecies. <laughs> I like what you said about the choices because if I were, you know, the witches are like, you're going to be king of Scotland. I'd go home and be like, hey, I'm going to be king of Scotland. And the king's coming over tonight. And I'd be like, well, better have a real nice dinner. And then I'll just sit around and wait to be crowned king of Scotland.
0: (laughs) And then... He's going to give it to me. He's going to give it to me. he
1: <laughs> live, you know, to, to, until he has a heart attack, and then it'll be mine. <laughs> um, and I also really enjoy that the, you know, the, I mean, all Macbeth is, like you said, is choices and then the fallout from those choices. And mm-hmm. one of the most stunning images, um, that as I was kind of summarizing it again for my wife tonight, it, it like gives me chills to think about the image, and especially because it has been done really well in several adaptations that i've seen um lady macbeth is driven to madness by her um you know the guilt and what she's done killing this king and she actually took part physically with her hand you know holding the bloody knife and so there's this really haunting um scene where she's wandering the castle scrubbing her perfectly clean hands saying out out you know, she's trying to get this these stains off of her hand that are visible only to her because of her guilt and madness. And there's a, a famous adaptation of this made by um, Roman Polanski, um, and it was actually the first film he made after his wife was um, murdered by Charles Manson's followers, which is kind of a weird... Um, oh, I didn't know Yeah, and he talks about... Um, that could be a whole separate uh, story, but kind of interesting. Go if you can find it. Go watch that adaptation. It's very interesting. But he depicts, and there's some controversy about this, but he depicts Lady Macbeth as ha- wandering around naked, which I think mm-hmm. is. It's interesting when nudity can be like um, something other than sexual, or or at least in this context, it's terrifying, which is kind of a weird yeah. to, have to nudity, and so she's just like so crazed with guilt and racked with all of this that she's just like stripped of everything and she's obsessed with her hands it's very strange um and and really kind of a cool image from that one um very powerful and so i love that because she you know gets her comeuppance and i that's one of the images that i associate most strongly with this is this poor person trying to scrub the guilt off of her hands that only she can see
0: I think I have thought about that speech and the washing of the hands moment pretty much every time I've ever washed my hands (laughs) of something like really stained and dirty. Like I really have to scrub at it. It just takes you back. (laughs) So that's Macbeth. And In order to get into how the play of Macbeth and the story of James I tie into the English Revolution, we first want to talk about the monarch that came before James I and after Bloody Mary, who we talked about last episode, and her name was Elizabeth. And you might have heard of her before because she reigned over England for a long time. And she was famously known as the Virgin Queen, because she never married and she had no children. Elizabeth I was the daughter of Henry VIII, who we talked about last time, by Anne Boleyn, his second wife, who he had divorced Catherine for. And then after Anne Boleyn was not giving him any sons, he beheaded Anne Boleyn. And so that's the child, uh, that's where Elizabeth I comes from, is from those two parents. Bloody Mary, Mary I of England was her sister. And you'll remember last time that when Edward VI, their brother died, and there's kind of a crisis of succession when Lady Jane Grey was put on the throne, Mary and Elizabeth rode into town together in support of Mary taking the throne and there were lots of cheering crowds and they were accompanied by hundreds of nobles. And it looked like Mary and Elizabeth at that point were pretty good friends. Um, Unfortunately, the unity that was apparent in that moment of writing in did not last very long. So Mary I we know from last time was Catholic, but Elizabeth was raised Protestant. And when she took the throne, Mary ordered everyone to attend catholic mass and elizabeth just kind of had to go along with it pretending to conform here but in her heart wanting to observe protestant uh, rituals the wyatt rebellion which came up quickly after we talked about that last time and it led to lady jane gray being executed Mm -hmm. also cast suspicion on elizabeth and it was noted that some of the people in the rebellion had talked to elizabeth you know heaven forbid they talk to anybody. And so that was deemed deemed suspicious. And she was imprisoned in the Tower of London. And let me just tell you what, if it looks like the history of the kings and queens of England is everybody gets to take a chance in the Tower of London for a couple of years, that is not too far from the truth yeah. because that it really is, that seems to be what it is. If you're not on the throne, then you're in the Tower of London or you're getting beheaded. So Mary I was urged to execute Elizabeth um, because as long as Elizabeth was around, it was kind of a threat to Mary's um, position on the throne, especially since the position depended on the popular perception of religion, and it looked like everybody in the region was Protestant with Mary on the throne and Mary was Catholic. So they urged Mary to execute Elizabeth, but she was likewise urged not to by other advisors who thought that was going to be a really bad idea to publicly kill your sister. Ultimately, as Elizabeth was not executed, and she was taken out of the Tower of London and put on house arrest in a place named Woodstock. And on her way from the Tower of London to Woodstock, there were crowds outside cheering her all along the way, which so was very popular, even when she was not yet queen. She succeeded the throne after Mary died. Mary died in her forties and didn't have any children though she really tried. And so as a result, the throne passed to Elizabeth who became one of the most famous queens in English history. She reigned for I think 50 to 60 years. And while she was alive, she, or while she was queen of England, She established something called the Elizabethan Religious Settlement, which created officially the Church of England, kind of um, bringing to a head everything that Henry VIII had kind of started getting in motion when they broke away from the Catholic Church. Um, She never married nor had any children, we mentioned that, although we didn't really mention that it's not really clear why she didn't do either of those things. Um if you watch the movie The Other Boleyn Girl, it is no no no, what am I thinking of? If you watch the movie Um Elizabeth featuring Gweneth no no no, what's her name? Oh my gosh, what is her name?
1: I don't know. I don't I'm looking know.
0: this up real quick. <laughs> Kate Blanchett, okay. If you watch <laughs> if you watch the movie Elizabeth starring Cate Blanchett, it's a great movie. It's one of Cate Blanchett's first movies, actually. She plays Queen Elizabeth. And if you watch the movie, it is very heavily implied that Elizabeth was not really a virgin. And that she did interact with male suitors. That she was proposed to by many men. But she simply just decided not to get married. And she never had any children. Um, As her reign went on, she started to insist publicly that she would never do this and saying that she was married to England and she was married to her subjects and she would rather be a poor woman and single than be queen and married. She said that once. And she also said something really funny when she was older. She got up in front of everybody and she addressed the room of people as All my husbands, (laughs) instead of, (laughs) you know, an actual husband. Later in life, the Pope, unfortunately, declared Elizabeth illegitimate as Queen of England, probably because there was some resentment there with the Catholic Church and the Church of England. And when that happened, it gave any Catholic sympathizers in England an excuse to, you know, toss Elizabeth out the window. And there were several assassination attempts on her life. Um, Cut to Scotland, where we have a woman named Mary, Queen of Scots. And there are so many good movies and shows about this story that I'll have to recommend in a second here. Mary was imprisoned by Queen Elizabeth for 19 years. And she was imprisoned Because she was considered by Roman Catholics to be the true Queen of England. And she herself had once laid claim to Elizabeth's throne. Now, why did Mary, Queen of Scots, even have a claim on the throne in the first place? There is an answer to that, and we'll get into it later. But basically, she had a claim to the throne, and she tried to take the throne from Elizabeth. There was something uncovered called the Babington Plot, which involved a couple different nobles and also Mary Queen of Scots, and from prison, a plot to assassinate Elizabeth. So for her involvement in the Babington Plot, Mary Queen of Scots was executed. And the story of her execution is absolutely horrifying. And it's one of the last executions in England that was done with beheading that was not using the guillotine to do so because the long story short of the execution is it was so brutal and grotesque and inhumane, honestly. That when Elizabeth heard about it, she imprisoned the guy who had even carried out the execution, even though she, he had done so under Elizabeth's orders wow. because it was a really, really and If any of you are not so squeamish, I do urge you to read the story of the execution on Wikipedia, horrifying though it is. Um, So Mary was executed. Other than that, during Elizabeth's reign, she ruled with quite a moderate tone and she established a lot of stability in England. Her Her reign, by the way, was 44 years. And her motto while she reigned was in Latin, video et taceo, which means I see and keep silent. Mm-hmm. So different approach from Henry VIII, very different approach from Mary the I, where she was just watching, you know, and trying to keep the peace, stay moderate, things like that. And eventually, um, and later in life, she died at age 69. And at that point, the throne passed to James the All right, so now we come to James the James the was the monarch who took over after Elizabeth died childless. And the confusing thing about James the is that he was also known as James the Sixth. And that's because when he took the throne of England as James I, he had already been reigning the kingdom of Scotland as James VI. So he succeeded when Elizabeth died. And if you're not familiar with the family tree, why James VI of Scotland had any business taking the throne from Elizabeth I of England is confusing thing right like it doesn't seem to make sense at all scotland was typically like you know if not subservient to to england then at least disconnected from england why would they have any business sending their king to be the king of england um so there's some important things to note the first is that elizabeth was not going to name a successor she just refused to do so And, you know, maybe that was a bit irresponsible on her part. I don't know why she was so insistent on that, but all of the nobles around her just kind of got used to the fact that she was not going to say who she wanted to reign when she died. So her senior advisor, Robert Cecil secretly connected with James VI of Scotland about potentially taking the throne after Elizabeth died. And, he had to do it in secret because you know elizabeth wasn't going to she didn't seem to approve anything or it wasn't supposed to be in her knowledge and he picks james the 6th because james the 6th out of anybody in the whole world probably has the most legitimate claim to the english throne that's because james the 6th had lineage to Henry VII, who was the father of Henry VIII. So going back to Henry VII, he had several children. He had Henry VIII, and he had a daughter named Mary, Queen of France, and he had another daughter who was Margaret Tudor, who became Queen of Scots. And if you'll remember the Lady Jane Grey, the Lady Jane Grey was put on the throne because she also had a claim through Henry VII. Her through Mary, Queen of France. So she was a granddaughter of Mary, Queen of France. And James VI's claim came through the daughter, Margaret Tudor. So if you think of Henry VIII and his two sisters, Mary and Margaret, both of their grandchildren eventually tried to take the throne. Lady Jane Grey, it didn't work out, but James VI, it actually did work out. Um, So James's claim then comes through Margaret Tudor, Queen of Scotland, who is the grandmother of Mary, Queen of Scots, who Elizabeth had executed not too long before. And so this is how he has claim to the throne. He's related to Henry VII. Elizabeth has no children. Henry VIII's children at this point are all gone. There's nobody else left. It looks like James is the best option. So Cecil encourages James VI to, to get in Elizabeth's good graces, I guess, sending her like nice letters and stuff. There's a couple evidences of this on Wikipedia that are semi interesting to read through. And <laughs> it, apparently it worked. She seems to like him in the letters that she wrote in like the year that before she passed away. This is a little bit surprising, I have to say, given that Elizabeth had James's mother beheaded. But, you know, I guess thrones heal all wounds and (laughs) why not try to make good and see if you can at least get a throne out of it before this lady dies.
1: Yeah, that reminds me a little bit of our conversation that we had about um, the lion in winter, where it was like, yeah, we might be kind of imposing some of our ideas of family dynamics on this. Like, once you get the crown involved and stuff like i think like he said the throne might mean more than he's your brother i don't care he he probably would have killed me for the crown too you know what i mean and so yeah but yeah that's that's totally true (laughs) like making friends yeah the person who had done that
0: and maybe this is being too sympathetic to royals but i can see how the position would be very difficult where you don't want to kill anybody per se but <laughs> if you don't throw them in prison you're gonna be thrown in prison you know right. i feel like the stakes are just so high it's that sword of damocles always hanging exactly. over your head like you know and so you know maybe he was like hey it's how it goes yeah <laughs> it's just well, part of the nature of the game
1: And that's a great tie back to Macbeth because once Macbeth does what he does, and he kind of he kills the king, and he's like, okay, now I'm the king of Scotland. He sees assassins behind every corner, and he's like, I'm killing all these people because I killed the king. So everybody else is obviously ready to kill the king, and then especially if somebody finds out that I killed the king, then I, you know. Mm -hmm. So he just has he has real and imagined threats everywhere and that would be to a certain extent what it would be like to be king i mean like you said if you can prove some lineage on this far off thing then you've got a claim to the throne and so if you're sitting on the throne and you're like well i've got a third cousins you know who just had a baby and it's a boy so maybe i should have that little tiny kid killed because it's a threat you know like you could see how you'd get into that very paranoid and like power right. maintaining mindset, but yeah, pretty bonkers. But that's, you know, part of what's interesting about um, kind of the weirdness of publishing Macbeth during this time is it's both appropriate because of the talk of assassination and and the duplicitousness that's going on. Um, so that's good, but it's also interesting because so we, it's the story of a Scottish king, uh, which is good because James is Scottish, but It's sort of in an interesting way in in several um, aspects. One of them is so in the play, Scotland is depicted kind of along the lines of Scottish stereotypes of the times, and even kind of today, still, um, the stereotype that might remain in the UK about the difference between people from um, England and people from Scotland. And that was like the Scots are kind of. rough and and brutish and they settle things through violence and they're less sophisticated and refined um and in the play england is depicted as this kind of macbeth tries to write them off as like weak effeminate but the play um you know macbeth is the villain for all intents and purposes in the play and and the play itself vindicates england as this place of like order and uh, where a divine king reigns and there's none of this petty assassination business going on and like, you know, we can have the sense of order come from England. Um, and so sort of an interesting interplay there um, to have it published. And that's, I think Shakespeare's really good at that. You'll hear that in any Shakespeare class you take where it's like, well, he was kind of, you know, not pander, but he, he was having this conversation with these people who probably felt this certain way about, you know, um, well, so take the merchant of Venice, he probably felt a certain way about Jews or had this idea about, um, Jewish, whatever, but he's also going to subvert it to a certain extent and make you quite, you know, he's going to lean on a principle and then say, but are you sure about that? And so he's kind of doing that here too, in some ways, um, you know, this story of Scottish King, but there's also kind of some some digs and a lot of under or subtext going on. Um, But yeah, I mean, if your life if your political life that you're living in your kingdom is full of all of this, you know, subterfuge and and deceit, you know, it makes sense your art is going to reflect that and it, it definitely does that in the case of Macbeth.
0: For sure. I think an interesting thing about James I's history is that even though he had claim through Henry Seventh, and his mother had claim, Mary, Queen of Scots, definitely had claim and had a reason to be, you know, opposing Elizabeth. And her father, James V of Scotland, also had claim. He was a son of Henry Seventh, And so they all had a, re- or excuse me, he was a grandson of Henry the Seventh. Um, not to play that whole game of the English family tree as <laughs> son of the grandson and son of the grandson. But anyway, so, you know, Scotland has been run by a couple of English people. Now they've got all these, you know, royals with lineage back to the English throne, but they're also deeply Scottish. If you yeah. go through James's lineage and James V and Mary, the Queen of Scots, on the Scottish side of their family, it goes all the way back to centuries of Scottish royals. Oh. And I think they spoke with Scottish accents, you know, deeply Scottish people. Interesting. Another interesting thing about James the First is that he was, I guess, the legend that, the legend went that he was a descendant of the real Banquo in the play. Oh,
1: okay.
0: And there's a line in the play where <laughs> I think the witches talk to Banquo, and they say kings, and yeah. that was a nod to the king on the throne at the actual time, who was
1: James the first. Yeah, and we'll we'll get more into this as we discuss the Gunpowder Plot and all of that. But James, so he, yeah, he he arrives in Eng- in England, and he's really eager to kind of sc- settle things, as you can imagine. Um, he wants to keep you know, the drama that's come and all of this. He's trying to maybe kind of get an even keel going. And he famously announced in 1610 in a speech to Parliament, he said this, the state of monarchy is the supremest thing upon earth for kings are not only God's lieutenants upon the earth and sit upon God's throne, but even God God himself, by God himself, they are called gods. And so... (laughs) He was really doubling down on this like divine right of king thing, which makes sense because if you're the Protestant king of England, not the Catholic king of England, you have got to assert some sort of uh, authority over what the Catholic Church would have. um, You know, you you've separated from the Catholic Church, so you no longer have that um, Mm. because you got to understand. You don't have you um, don't have the Pope exactly and you don't have mm-hmm. i mean when you think of the when we talking about the catholic church it's different than today where it's like well you have you know this uh religious persuasion followed by many many um you know sincere devotees of religion it's like well but back then it kind of was the government like the yeah. holy roman mm-hmm. empire was <laughs> you know like it it was it was one and the same it was mm-hmm. we rule so you know the pope this is this um you know, my my reign extends over the earth as as a result of me being um, the religious figure that I am. And so, if you're going to break from that, you kind of are compelled to have some sort of a justification, an independent justification. And the divine right of kings had existed long before that, but it was it became really important for the Protestant to be like, ah, God wants me here too. You know that that used to be the line that that we that was um we were served by the the pope's claims of authority but now i have to have my own and so he's really doubling down on the divine right of kings because like he said i mean it's uh he he needs to establish himself and be taken seriously both as a you know as a scottish monarch on the on the british throne but also just as um as a protestant As a protestant yeah Mm -hmm. it gets really really complicated So as we move on from this conversation our next episode is going to be about the gunpowder plot um, which is a very famous event in in british history and has a lot of impact on modern culture pop culture even that you'll um, you'll see you might already be familiar with but macbeth is a great lens for this because throughout macbeth like i said there's lots of conversation about you know how how could somebody assassinate their king and how could somebody be so duplicitous and there's so much talk about how demons speak in a double sense and they keep a promise to your face but break it behind your back and all of this was a discussion of um the a catholic plot to kill the protestant um monarch of england in something called the gunpowder plot so we'll explore that as we go forward and it's really fun to, to look at after we've discussed Macbeth like we have today
0: race I hope next episode ends with the happy story and that the Catholics and Protestants <laughs> get together for a nice dinner in the end and yep. everything can be nice
1: that's exactly right and Ireland and Northern <laughs> Ireland are totally happy and no cars got blown up in the 90s and everything's
0: fine <laughs> I get claps all around yeah.
1: Yeah and I mean that it's we joke about it but it, I mean it is really sad people to this day continue to hate and be hated and kill and die over this and I mean it's 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 no joke I mean I was kind of shocked to how I learned fairly recently and we'll probably talk about we can talk about this in our gunpowder plot episode but like I mean Ireland really As a result of the, the, you know, a descendant of this debate, the Catholic and Protestant, I was very ignorant to the history of this. And I mean, um, that's just a good microcosm kind of a study of the really nation wrenching forces that went on here. And it, it all has its roots back here where, you know, we've got Catholics, we've got Protestants and they they don't get along on a deeply, deeply significant level.
0: Our footnotes today are about some movies and television that you can watch if you'd like to know more about the monarchs that we've talked about in the past two episodes. Firstly, there's the movie The Other Boleyn Girl, about Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. It stars Natalie Portman and Scarlett Johansson, and it talks about the lesser-known sister of Anne Boleyn, Mary, and her affair with the king. There's also the movie Mary, Queen of Scots, with Sir Ronan and Margot Robbie about the ill-fated Queen of Scotland and her rivalry with Queen Elizabeth. Also about Queen Mary is one of my personal favorite TV shows from The CW, called Reign, like the reign of a monarch, R-E-I-G-N. This show takes historical inaccuracy and spins it into gold. It's a fun, exciting way to learn about Mary and her relationship with her mother-in-law, Catherine de' Medici. Lastly is a movie that we haven't seen yet from one half of the Coen brothers. It's an adaptation of the play Macbeth, and it stars Denzel Washington as Macbeth and Frances McDormand as Lady Macbeth. It comes out this Christmas. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. We'll see you next time when we discuss the gunpowder plot. And if you'd like to get ahead, you might check out the movie V for Vendetta before next week. It won't spoil the plot, but it's a great movie all to itself. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.